The Athletic. Hello, I'm Ian McIntosh and welcome to the Football Manager Show, sponsored by LiveScore. On today's show, is this something you never do? Opposition instructions. I either outsource them to the assistant manager or I just don't really get round to them. We're going to have a deep dive with Sports Interactive's Jack Joyce and find out exactly what it all means. Also on the show, it's part two of the Derby County Community Challenge. How are you getting on? Did you get relegated? Did you stay up? Or did you, as one of our listeners did, actually get promoted to the Premier League? Find out more soon. Plus, we've got your letters and a load of other fascinating stuff too. So let's get cracking. But. Before all of that, we've got a bit of a favour to ask. We're doing a little bit of research and wondered if you might be able to spend about 60 seconds filling out this survey. No, no, don't run away. If you do it, you could win £100 of Amazon vouchers. Now, the survey is on the timeline of my Twitter account, at Ian underscore games, or if you've got a pen and paper and you're really keen, you can find it on opinions.ssinc.co.uk. Thank you. Let's move on quickly. Jack Joyce is here. Hello, Jack. Hey, how you doing? Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. For anyone who doesn't know you... What exactly do you do all day? <laughs> well, I'm the uh, senior QA lead for the match team. I spend a lot of time organising how we test the match engine, providing feedback on areas of improvement that we should be looking to make for the future. And I also do a bit of design as well for features. So things like the pressing revamp and the wide centre-back role, um, I did a lot of design on those as well. Well, congratulations, because those things are working out very, very well. The improvement to the, the Geg Impressed and the, the Counter-Attack, I think, is my favourite improvement of the game so far. It's kind of, you can still win with Geg Impressed, but you've really got to put the, uh, put the preparation in. We get loads and loads of emails from people who are playing the game, trying to get better at the game. So Matthew Atkinson got in touch after the Newcastle-Liverpool Cup final. Noticing on the on the live feed, I just pretty much skipped through opposition instructions. That came a couple of days before James Wascom wrote in, requesting a topic for planning for the opposition. As much as I want to play up to my squad strengths, he says, I also want to counteract my opponent's strengths and exploit their weaknesses. I hear stories of Mourinho and his extensive dossiers that Bobby Robson said were the best he'd ever seen or Bielsa's press conference discussing his tactical analysis of Derby. I would really like a guide to which formation you should choose to counteract your opponents, areas to look for that are exploitable, pre-match trainings for specific uh, tactical styles, how to make your team as adaptable as possible. There's a lot of information and I am the worst person to give any answers, but you're probably the best. So let's just start with the obvious one. If you go full proper football man, and choose to let the opposition worry about you, are you missing out on the opportunity to make your team better? Yeah, I think so. Obviously, you want to keep a, you want to have a consistent style. So even like a manager like Bielsa, who you know does a, a lot of tactical analysis on the opposition, he always feels like he has a distinct way of playing that's consistent match to match. So I think it's about finding the marginal gains that you can make. So what gives you the most bang for your buck? If you can just adjust one little instruction or one little opposition instruction, 
it could make the difference without having to, you know, you don't have to suddenly start changing your entire style of play and structure just for one match, but you can make little adjustments. If anyone's listening to this and they're like, mate, I won the Champions League with Lincoln and I don't change my team ever. What's an example of like one little thing you could do to improve your chances uh, against an upcoming opponent? Yeah, well, there's quite a few things you can do. For example, one thing I like to do is just look at the uh, attributes of the opposition defenders. Especially if you've done a good scouting job on them, you shouldn't have any of that fog of war. You can see exactly what their physicals are like. So you could see that maybe they've got a small centre-back or maybe they've got a slow player in that back line. If they have like a slow left-back, maybe you want to move your quick, tricky right winger over to the opposite side. So that's a big one for me, um, especially if you find someone small in that back line. Maybe you want to just change your crossing instructions a little bit or maybe see where they position for set pieces and try and target them there as well. Which member of staff is it that's in charge of giving you the um, the sort of forthcoming opponent report? So it depends what scout you've got assigned to the job. But yeah, I would always suggest having one of your favourite scouts assigned onto that job. You can set it in your scouting assignments menu. Yeah, they should give you a, a good overview of what system the opposition are likely to play, and then that can really help coming into your line of thinking. But I, I do also recommend just watching the highlights of the last match or two as well, especially for the really important cup finals, just to get a real feel for how they look on the pitch as well. I've noticed that the AI does occasionally adapt to what you're doing, particularly on, on Derby County, which we'll discuss later. Everything was about sitting deep and then springing the trap and getting behind the back line. Towards the end of the season, they were dropping deeper and deeper, all the, all the opponents. That's the thing that actually happens, isn't it? First of all, I'm not being paranoid, am I? <laughs> no, that that is a thing that happens. So um, it's always a very commonly misconstrued thing. They don't necessarily react to your specific instructions, but they do react to how they perceive you as a, an opponent. So if you're on a really good run of form, they think, oh, hang on, this isn't the derby we thought we were playing at the start of the season. This is actually a stronger side than we thought. And then they'll play a little bit less attacking. They might sit, sit off a bit more. It's mostly about how they perceive your strength and yeah, they'll play more defensively or more attacking based on your recent form. Excellent. So we're looking at an opposition report. What are the things that we're looking out for? Where, where are the clues as to where we're going to find these exploitable zones? Yeah, so in the opposition report, the main thing I'm looking to see is um, what their playing style is and then what their formation is as well and what roles they use. Because really, it's not just the formation that sort of creates their shape, it's also the, or the roles particularly in midfield I like to keep an eye on do they have any midfielders that like to run forward into the box like a box-to-box role or like an attacking Metzala but also just with the formation you know you can draw back to previous times you've played against that formation and think okay do we shape up well against that or do I need to make a slight adjustment I would also really recommend using the data hub as well that gives you some great insights into the strengths and weaknesses of the oppositions, particularly things like when you look at the aerial uh, abilities of their players individually. If you notice a player right on the lower end of that scale in the air, you can really try and exploit that with your crossing. And of course, on the Data Hub, there is a next opponent tab specifically there. So nice and easy to find it there. So let's say you find a, a, a team with a 5 foot 11 centre-back who's got a heading of 10. What would you specifically do to enable your team to exploit that? Would you look at possibly using a target man when you never usually use one? Potentially, but only if it fits into the way I want to play anyway. I wouldn't drastically change my style. I would make slight adjustments. So, for example, from set pieces, I'd look at where they generally defend zonally, if they do zonally defend, and then try and target that area. 
but also with your crossing you can set individual player instructions on your wingers to cross far post or near post or central so if i, if I know they're the left-sided center back i'll try and make sure our crosses are going to that area of the pitch it depends if you have a really good target man like yeah it's a great idea but also you don't want to try and just fit a square peg into a round hole and then you might end up actually hurting yourself more than you help i think that this is a fear it's like if if there's a payoff that's great but what what does it cost you is there any way you can sort of make minor adjustments like keep the the bulk of your tactical plan the same or is it even worth having three completely different tactics that you've trained for ages and ages and ages and then sort of adjust accordingly yeah, like you say, you have um, three tactics that you can train throughout the season. So I'd really, you could assess it over the course of your season. I think if I'm constantly making this sort of adjustment to count on my opponents, then maybe it should be one of your three tactical slots. I would try and focus on making it the most distinct tactics possible. Because um, if you're just going to change one or two instructions in a, in a slight way, then your team are mostly going to be familiar. And you should be looking at that tactical familiarity bar to really see, okay, when I make these changes... How comfortable my team with those changes? And if, if it's starting to drop quite a bit, you might want to think you should make it one of your free tactical styles that you're training. Before the game, there's the opposition instructions for specific players, which most of the time I outsource to Steve Bould because, you know, why wouldn't you? He's, he's a great man. When you make dramatic changes there, say you suddenly decide to close down five or six players, can that do any damage to your performance because it, it's such a drastic change from the way you usually play? Yeah, yeah, I think it can do. Generally, I recommend only using one or two trigger press opposition instructions personally. But really, it's, it's up to you. I think you do need to be a little bit careful and just keep an eye on things as you set these instructions, especially in a press. If you're doing a high press and you're setting five or six pressing instructions on the opposition players then really you run the risk of losing your structure very often because they're just constantly chasing down whoever's got the ball i like to specifically pick out someone in the opposition back line or a midfielder that i know is bad on the ball so if i know they've got low composure low decisions then i like to trigger press on just them so then your team sort of encourages them to get the ball and then you pounce on them and hope that you force them into a mistake even if you don't necessarily make the tackle oh, you can force nice. them into a bad pass that's very, really nice. I'm going to start doing that now. Um, when it comes to the week before a big game, I, I speak as someone who's got a very big game coming up. There is a wonderful big game preparation template already there. But is it worth looking at the opposing team, finding out the style of football they play and then putting in appropriate sessions? For example, one of the things I do actually do is check during the season who's getting the most goals from corners and then toss in a defending corner session before I play them. But is there a lot to be gained there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it does make a big difference. And I think it's something a lot of people ignore and just leave it to the template. But it really does actually have a direct impact on your match performance. So I do recommend just thinking about how you think the match is going to go. If you think, yeah, like you say, if you're against a team that's got a really good set-piece record, then maybe you want to think about setting a set-piece defensive temp training session. But also, um, if you think you're going to have not much of the ball, you might want to set a defensive shape session, and it does improve your team's cohesion defensively. And there's also things like attacking movement routines as well that will improve your team's attacking cohesion for the next match as well. What's the most obsessive you've seen anyone in the office or, or, or even people who've written in? What, what's the most obsessive you've seen people get about playing on a game-by-game -game basis? And uh, I have to confess, I did go through a stage of watching future opponents' defensive set pieces so that I could try and isolate small people. 
Yeah, there are some people that like to go into a lot of detail. Um, I've, I've seen some posts on the forums about how people sort of as like a bit of an, an experiment, just they watch a lot, like the last three games of the opponent. They watch their matches in full match highlight mode, which not many people do. And then they're constantly tweaking and making adjustments based on they, what they see throughout the match. It's definitely rare. I think most people, like I say, they don't even adjust their training before the match or they might just leave their opposition instructions to the, the assistant. But I think that's one of the great things about Football Manager, right? You can dig into it as much as you'd like to get those little marginal gains or you can just leave it to your assistant and they'll do a, a reasonable job. I guess in that it's not dissimilar from real football, is it? You know, the, the glory years of Liverpool through the 70s and 80s were built pretty much on five-a-side in training and um, and then steak and chips at, at lunch. And then you compare and contrast with early-stage Mourinho and they're two very different ways of doing it. Are we, do you think, getting realistically close to the point where you're, you'll need to build up a managerial team of actual human beings to uh, delegate tasks to, to play this game to its maximum potential? <laughs> Hopefully we can keep things balanced so like you know we can always keep it accessible to new players and then also for the really hardcore extreme players they can really dig into it as well we, we always think about like okay how is this going to impact the more casual player do we have fallback options like you know leaving it to your assistant uh, but we also look at real world football right there's some managers that for example a lot of teams now are just hiring set piece coaches and, and they leave the set piece routines just to that specific coach in that area but there's also some managers that are very hands-on with it themselves and like to manage it themselves. So I think it's something we're seeing creep into the modern game as well, with more delegation to specific experts in those respective areas. Anything else before we let you go that um, could be just a, a quick fix, something to make every player get involved in opposition planning and improve their team's fortunes? Oh, God, you put me on the spot here. Um, <laughs> I think there's a, there's a few things. So, for example... Um, you have a really big match and you really want someone to specifically follow the instructions you've given them because it's like a really important weakness you're trying to counter in the opposition. It's your player's teamwork attribute that really controls how strictly they follow your instructions. If they've got low teamwork, they might sort of want to do things their own way. But if they've got really high teamwork, they're going to be a bit of a professional on the pitch. They're a reliable, dependable player that's going to follow your instructions to the T. But also think about your formation as well. You don't want to make drastic changes for the sake of it. But also, you know, if you play a two in midfield and you're coming up against a team like Manchester City, you need to make sure you're congesting that middle of the pitch. So maybe you want to change to like a, a diamond that really, really funnels the play out wide. Um, it might not just be enough to set the uh, defensive width to narrow to force them outside. You, you also need to think about your shape. Is that really helping you force them out wide as well? You know, conversations like this make me think I've been playing the game wrong all these years. I mean, conversations like this and my results make me think I've been playing the game wrong all these years. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Jack Joyce from Sports Interactive. Um, that's absolutely brilliant. And I'm going to have a long, hard look in the mirror now. <laughs> no worries. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's more than a score with Live Score. Legends of the game. So, what's all this about then? Well, with LiveScore, which I'm certain you've all downloaded for free from the App Store or Google Play, you get the latest action stats and analysis from around the world. Because we know with football, it goes beyond scores. It's the stories from the pitch and the stands, players and fans all spinning their own strands of the mighty football web that links us all together. And there's no better way to twang that web than by playing Football Manager. Because we've been doing it for so many years, made a few memories. Welcome 
to Legends of the Game. This week, who remembers Supat Rungratsumi? Anyone, I would wager, who played CM4. That's who. Now, CM4 was a troubled game, and its patchy performance is one of the many reasons why CMO 102 is so adored. But let's ignore all of that and focus on the positives. And nothing is as positive as signing Supat Rungratsumi. He's just 15 when the game starts, and he's in the Portsmouth reserve team, but he's already got the sort of shooting attributes that would get him Champions League football. Blessed with outstanding technique and the acceleration of Max Verstappen, this chap would be banging on the door of your first team before the first season was out. But who was he, and where did he go? Well, thanks to a fantastic interview by Jack Kenmare of Sport Bible, we can tell you he's still in the UK, and if you want to feel old, you should know that he's 30 now. Oh, but he was a big talent. They called him Robocop because of his power and determination. He scored freely at youth levels and it seemed as though the world was his oyster. But it just never worked out. His parents broke up, he wasn't training as frequently, and then his career was effectively ended by a serious knee injury sustained not long after he appeared in this game. He left Portsmouth at 16, returned to Thailand, tried to make a go of it there, but there was just too much damage. But he came back to Portsmouth, he got a job in a restaurant, and now he's a sous chef in Bishop Stortford. So that's nice. It really is a great interview. Search for Jack Kenmare and Sports Bible. Or, if you check my Twitter feed, I've retweeted it there. Supat Rungratsumi. What a player. That was It's More Than a Score with LiveScore, Legends of the Game. You can get real-time updates and results, match highlights and breaking news from around the football world on the LiveScore app. And it's completely free. Just search for it on the App Store or Google Play now. Have you ever subscribed to The Athletic? No? Well... Unusually, I'd be furious, but today is your lucky day. If you go to theathletic.com forward slash fmpod, you'll find a very special offer. It's a pound a month for six months. Six quid. That's cheaper than a pint in London. And for hundreds of thousands of expertly deployed words that take you up to, well, September 2022 if you do it today. So go to theathletic.com forward slash fmpod right now. All right, it's time to update on the Derby County Community Challenge. If you're playing at the pace in which the challenge is intended, you will have just finished the second half of your first season, which means you will either have pulled off what can really only be described as a miracle and stayed up, or you're preparing for life in League One, which is totally understandable because this challenge was hard. With me to discuss it is the Athletics Derby County correspondent, Elias Burke. Elias, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I realise you've just only finished yours very recently, so I guess your feelings will be dictated on that. Yeah, <laughs> 10 minutes ago. I have finished and I thought it was going to be a lot easier than that. I still went into the final game needing a point to stay up. I got all three and finished 14th or 15th. I, d- I didn't even look. I was only happy about staying up, but yeah, that was tight. How about you? 14th or 15th having only a point to survive at the the final day. It must have been very close at the bottom. It was so tight. Into the final few weeks, it was 10 or 11 teams could have, could have been relegated. So I didn't really want that. 
But did you make it? Did you make the cut? Yeah, I, well, I finished 18th, but I, I finished a fair distance away from uh, 21st. So I think nice. like maybe I finished with 55 points or 56 points, something like that. I think we, we would have finished in the playoffs had we not had the deduction. So it's a pretty good season. It ended up being slightly less climactic than perhaps, you know, would have been exciting. But um, yeah, it was a good season and helped massively by 19 assists from Tom Lawrence, who's unfortunately departing for Celtic next season. So I have to plan for life without him. I did not get Tom Lawrence because he went after a couple of games and sort of had to bundle along and make do with whoever I could get. But it was a real slog. The thing that saved me was I had a really simple formation. It was just fluid counter-attack, 4-3-3. And by the end of the season, the dynamics were so high. I think it was just character and team spirit that was dragging us through. I also got Rory Delap's boy in on loan. He went up front and picked up 12, 13 goals. So he did something of a job. Who, who was your best signing? So I actually tried to get Roy, Liam Delap rather, because he's actually a, a Derby Academy product, if you didn't already know. So he, uh, Of course he is, yeah. yeah. He came up with Max Bird and Jason Knight in that kind of conquering under-18 Premier League winning team. So, of course, he's got an affinity to the club. So I thought that might have been a point in my favour when trying to get him, but Manchester City did not want to, to send him on loan to me. Same with... Cole Palmer and all the others that I tried so hard to get. But um, Dane Scarlett was my guy. So from Spurs, I think he was only 17 when we got him in January. But um, he scored nine goals in 13 games or something. So he was, yeah, a revelation. And I probably can thank him. And as I mentioned before, Lawrence, for keeping me up. I actually got four Manchester City under-23s in. A centre-back who was so bad that I've forgotten his name, I think Mate. Hamilton, a winger, who was really so bad that his name is forever seared into my brain with his 6.2 average. A fairly unimpressive defensive midfielder called Pozzo. Thank God Delap came through for me, but I was losing players left, right and centre. Lawrence was amazing. Bird was amazing. I lost both of them for four to six weeks. And really, I think I stayed up for set pieces. Festi Ibisele had this long, flat throw that led directly to five goals from Liam Delap, the pressing forward, who just went and attacked it and managed to beat the goalkeeper to it. We had 14 goals from Curtis Davis from near post corners. That dynamic, simple tactics... And just a desperate scramble. We were getting, and we got tonked 5 0 in the penultimate game. So we were getting beaten left, right, and centre. But crucially, we were also winning games. It was um, emotionally, and I know you know you get the real life version, but that, that was a that was a bit of an ordeal, wasn't it? Well, I was really happy with my seven from Curtis Davis from near post corners. So. 14 is especially impressive. So who did you have on who did you have on corners sending the deliveries to him? Uh Lawrence most of the time. Oh okay, well the same thing with me. But yeah, maybe that's going to be my way to replace Lawrence next season to uh work on those long flat throws with with Ebersaley. But um yeah, in terms of the long kind of grueling season as I said it towards the end it wasn't as climactic as yours cuz I was pretty much safe by four or five games remaining, really. i tell you what, the thing that really stuck out was how incredibly good their under-23s are. There's so many players that were coming through. It was like every time I called someone in, just thinking, oh, God, just go out there and do me a job, they turned out to be brilliant. There's a golden generation coming through. I've seen, you know, we'll, we'll talk about 
how listeners are getting on in a minute, but uh, a lot of people have talked about getting golden generation youth intakes on the first season. In real life, how uh, is this accurate? Is Derby's youth system as, as good as it seems on the game? Well, that's, yeah, the academy is kind of the jewel in, in Derby's crown, really. So many players have, have come up from the academy of late. You know, obviously Max Bird and Jason Knight, Lee Buchanan as well. They're all 21 or under. And then Festia Basali, of course, who's now kind of a first team regular. And he obviously can develop into a really top player on, on the game. He only got promoted into the first team at the beginning of this season. So, I mean, there's just been a constant stream. I mentioned Liam Delap early and there's been Cade Gordon, who's departed for Liverpool recently. And uh, there was another guy, Dylan Williams, who went to Chelsea. So, um, I mean, even when they have to pr- promote so many players from the 18s and the 23s to the first team, their academies are still unbelievably competitive. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, the 18s beat the likes of Everton, the likes of Leeds. Um, they're quite high up in the Northern Premier League, which shows you, you know, they're really competing with the top teams across the country. But th- there are so many more players coming up as well. So Aaron Cashin, who's probably part of the first team as you start the save, he's been kind of imperious in, in defence alongside Curtis Davis. Uh, he, he only made his debut a month ago, but he's developed into a mainstay into the first team. You've written about him this week on The Athletic, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. He's just been called up by the Ireland under-21s today, actually, which is massive news for him and Ebersaley as well. He's hoping that Jason Knight gets a call up to the first team. But yeah, the, you know, really, really excellent player. And it's, it's a good piece, and I've spoken to um, a couple of guys at the academy that kind of mentioned about how he kind of grew up as a Sunday league player, you know, the blood and thunder type, the the tackles and the heads, heading everything and stuff. But his, his technical attributes are really underrated as well. He's a really good passer and really good reader of the game. Have they got some sort of scouting network in Ireland? Because a lot of the young players are Irish, aren't they? Yeah, so it started with Hendrick. I think he's at QPR now, but about a decade ago when he came in to the first team. Since then, it's kind of just accelerated. So as I mentioned, yeah, Ebersaley, Cashin, who's actually Mansfield-born, so he's an East Midlander, but he has Irish family. There's Festi Ebersaley as well. There's a young guy in the academy, Ola Ibrahim, who's a really highly touted prospect. They've got really good connections in, in Ireland. And obviously it's been a little bit more complicated now of late because of Brexit and stuff, but they're still trying to kind of maintain those connections. So they're trying to kind of build out into affiliate clubs and stuff so hopefully they can develop the players until they get to 18 and then Derby can take them from then because they really don't want to lose that connection to the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland as well where they've got really good connections because um, I mean yeah they've been massively supporting the first team of late. Now here's one who I really struggled with Kamil Josviak. Uh, he's uh, the Polish winger he's Bilex mate his stats are fantastic I could not get a song out of that boy. And I noticed he's been released from the club in real life. What, what's his story? And yeah, he's he's been sold to Charlotte FC. So he came up through um, the Lech Poznan um, Academy, I believe, which is one of the biggest clubs in Poland. You might remember the, um, the Poznan maybe a decade ago now with Manchester City, the celebration where they all kind of jump in unison with their backs turned to the football. That was my first memory of them. But yeah, he, he came up through the academy. I remember I actually had him on Football Manager a few years ago and he turned into a world beater. And I mean, unfortunately, that quite hasn't happened for him in real life. But he's a Poland international. He 
I think he mainly plays as a wing back for them. And when he's played as a wing back for for Derby, it's, it's tend to work pretty well. But it's not really the system that Rooney tends to go to. So he, he you know, kind of gets played a, a bit further forward, and it hasn't really suited him. I think the Championship is just kind of very difficult league to settle into, and especially with the pandemic and stuff. And obviously Bielik being injured, he was kind of left a little bit isolated, and he didn't really settle into Derby. Which is a shame because, you know, he was a four million pound signing and, you know, Derby have now sold him for one million, so that's a massive kind of three million net loss. How did they get into that financial trouble? I know, I know. So fortunately in, in our versions of the game, I think most people have had their club taken over now. I've actually got the the wonderful message that after a whole season in which they wouldn't give me a penny, even if I sold players, they've suddenly given me eight million quid to spend. Yeah, um, I got how, that too. How much have you? Did you? You got that yeah. set up for the second season? I mean, yeah. there's there's not a lot of people who want to come and play for me, but it it feels like it feels like there's something to build on now. I feel confident. How do you feel? I feel rich with eight million, considering how <laughs> I how I started the season. I think we just started the the transfer window. And uh, we brought in Grady Diangana from West Brom and um, Matt Clark from Brighton. So we've strengthened the squad. I think it only cost a combined three million quid as well, which is not bad. So if you can uh, if you can tap into to West Brom, then then there are, those are two signings that you can that you can sign. There's you know loan signings as well will be massive, but it's just one of those. Can can we attract them from the big clubs to come and play for Derby when they've got offers from top clubs in the Championship and bottom bottom clubs in the Premier League? I'm not sure, but guess that remains to be seen. All right. Well, we will check back in with you soon to find out how it's going on. Thank you for having me on. I think that's my third appearance now, so I'm uh, really excited oh. to maybe carry on a little bit a bit longer. Hang on. Stand by. Stand by. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the executive bathroom, sir. There you go, Elias Burke. You're now officially a friend of the show. I know that the, this is often a very emotional moment, but uh, you must be profoundly moved. It's the nicest bathroom I've ever been into, without a doubt. I mean, it kind of sounds and looks like heaven. It really is. It really is. All right, that's how Elias got on. What about you, producer Steve? Um, well, based on last week, how do you think I got on, Ian? Not good by the tone of your voice? <laughs> no, very badly. We very much got relegated. And I don't know whether it's just the randomness that the AI throws up, right? But you know I mentioned last week that um, about a week before pre-season started, sorry, finished, key players were sold, which made the system not work. You're into the championship. You just can't... It's match recovery, match recovery. So you can't train new tactics anyway because you're just doing physical recovery. Then I didn't get a takeover at all until really, really late until like after the January transfer window, like a week after. So I had two windows where I just couldn't do anything, not even hire coaches. So, you know, after the January window, I hired coaches, got in Ricky Sabregia. Apologies, Ricky. Sprasia. 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 Lovely man. To try and sort out the defence. But I wasn't able to hire coaches until second half of the season. So I don't know if anyone else had a takeover as late as that. But by that point, it was already too late. Got relegated. Um, yeah. It's a hell of a thing. It's I mean, if you get a situation like that, or or like my own situation, having no Tom Lawrence for the entire season, 
Um, it's a really, really big ask. Let's have a look at how people got on, because thank you so much for all your messages. We've crammed loads in. We've also missed loads. I'm really sorry, but uh, keep writing to us, and we'll try and make sure everyone gets a mention. Ollie Craven, he stayed up, and then some. In fact, he was only seven points off the playoffs. Sean Black stayed up by the skin of his teeth, but he's got a golden generation, and he's gearing up for season two. Absolutely right there with him. Stuart Moldew didn't quite make it. He started well, but too many injuries and a run of 15 games without a win did for him. But you know what? He didn't get sacked. He's still going. I feel your pain there, Stuart. FPL engineer finished ninth with 69 points and got 28 goals out of Luke Plange. That's, I mean... That, yeah... I got four. Um, (laughs) Did not work. Uh, James Burrow got relegated, got sacked, and then unilaterally took on the 2021 Community Challenge by getting the Sunderland job. Wow. Fair play there, James. Sam Routledge is a nervous wreck, uh, and that's all he says. Yeah, it doesn't say how it finished. (laughs) Uh, Nor does Sean Black, who's four points off the safety zone with four games to go. Sean, keep us posted. Matthew Ng just got over the line, finishing 21st. Uh, Louis Brown got relegated, but has a golden generation, so he's still in the game. So Thomas McGregor also got relegated, uh, so it looks like I'm not really alone here. Disregarded the time restrictions and got them back up at the end of Season 2. Tom RH, he he made it. He made it with games to spare. (sighs) All right, fine. (laughs) Asad Aziz quit because he wasn't working first time round. Started the whole thing again, and this time um, Asad is looking to... Stay up, actually. So better time second time around. Yep, nothing wrong with playing a mulligan for the entire save. It's uh, it's only when you're doing it on a game-by-game basis that, you know, it's, it's a bit dodgy. And speaking of which, uh, Juan Benjima reports that he was taken over by a Russian billionaire. Now, that may not be as helpful as he thinks. <laughs> uh, keep them coming. I'm Macintosh at theathletic.com. Ian underscore games on Twitter. Over the next real-time week, your mission is to get to December the 31st in the second season. That might be in League One, it might be in the Championship, and for one person, it's in the Premier League, which I'm still struggling to get my head around. Well done, everyone. We go again. Okay, it's time for your, well, non-Derby County letters. First in the bag is Alex Cook, who feels compelled to write after a traumatising experience with Altrincham. Altrincham? Altrincham. Why do I always get that wrong? Altrincham. I always want to say Altrincham. But anyway, them felt like a save that could be up there with one of his most enjoyable ever, but ended in what can only be described as tragic circumstances. Now, usually that word is thrown about, but here I think Alex deserves to use that word. It took him four seasons to get the team promoted from the Vanarama National to League Two, but then, whew, momentum kicks in four seasons later, they're in the Premier League. Now, predictably, they got relegated, but the injection of cash allowed a new all-seater stadium to be built and some really promising players and another tilt at the championship. That worked out perfectly, won the championship at Canter, back to the big time. It also been appointed as the England manager in the meantime. All in all, uh, Alex is having an absolutely lovely time. And then, the summer before the second go at the Premier League, the board sacked him. The reason? Failure to play enough youth players as per the board's expectations. At the time of his last contract negotiations, Alex says eyes were drawn immediately to where the board expected us to finish. And I clearly hadn't read any of the other stuff. Uh, This oversight has cost me a tilt at glory with the mighty Robins and I am gutted. We We were horrified, so we went to Sports Interactive. Steve, what did they say? 
They said that all parts of a club's vision slash board expectations will go towards the user's overall rating, how the board rates them. Due to the user having performed so well, it seems unlikely they should have been sacked for not adhering to that club vision. So what may have been the issue is that the user has made a board request and agreed to do something in exchange for that request and then has not delivered on that promise. Because by and large, not adhering to a club vision should have more impact on the user only if they are struggling to meet expectations. So it is an unusual case, um, yeah. they do say. I wonder if it was because he was England manager as well. They were like, yeah, your eye's not on this anymore. Absolutely. Um, I think that's how I'd try and rationalise it, but I would, <laughs> I would probably still be drunk now if that happened to me. Joseph Scott, remember a couple of weeks ago we asked if there were any other examples of players able to successfully rise through the divisions, and Joseph recounts the story of Abdul Karim Belmokhtar, who scored buckets for him with Edinburgh City in League 2 and League 1. His pace and finishing meant he had most defences on toast. And while his stats never really changed, he continued to score in the Championship and then the Premiership. He was never out of his depth and even outscored Edison Cavani, who joined Celtic in uh, Edinburgh's first Premiership season. Joseph says, phased Abdul out after I signed the greatest regen I've ever had to play as a striker, <laughs> Fernando Maloney. But he's another story. And he's still chip in with a goal, but he was getting on a bit. It's time to move him on. So he went back to Algeria. And then something miraculous happened. After a few seasons, the aforementioned Maloney took us all the way to the Champions League title. And when we played the World Club Cup semi-finals, we came up against a team from North Africa whose name I recognised. And you guessed it, he was there on the bench. It was very emotional. I like to think we caught up after the game with a glass of wine. And that's the story of Abdul Karim Belmokhtar. I think he only spent one season at Edinburgh in real life. Check to see if he was on Football Manager 2022. Nope, not there. But that's beautiful. Thank you for that. That's a shame. That's a shame that he's not there in real life. Edison Cavani at Celtic's nice as well, isn't it? That's a lovely idea. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? That might happen in real life. Speaking of beautiful, though, Jack Hobson's done some lovely stuff, hasn't he? He has. So uh, Jack Hobson writes in and says something slightly different that I think you might appreciate. Um, and Jack has a blog called thehalfspaces.com. So that's the half spaces, no spaces, ironically. I've just finished my FM21 game, so a bit behind, but which is fine. You know, it's all about playing football manager in a wider sense here. And in that game, Jack created each of the Beatles and charted their career in a weird FM style homage to the greatest band that there ever was. Jack's words, I'm not going to get into that debate. The save is called While My Mazala Gently Weeps. Very good. And it would definitely help to be a Beatles fan to fully appreciate these pieces. Each post is filled with daft Beatles references and anecdotes. But ultimately, it's still just FM content that can hopefully be read and appreciated by anyone in the FM community. The final post, you want to have a guess at what it's called, Ian? Uh, the White Album. Ooh, up there, up there, but no. Final post, let it be, summarises this 10-season story, although that does mean it contains spoilers on the rest of it. Lovely stuff. We are definitely at home to that kind of thing. So if, if you've got anything you've done that's uh, it's kind of a bit weird, a bit outside the ordinary, uh, give us a shout. If you've seen anything that's a bit weird and outside the ordinary, remember in the early episodes, we had people who'd invented their own countries and then like 12 teams in the division and their own cup competitions. That would glorious um send it over imacintosh at theathletic.com or twitter ian underscore games and that was the football manager show sponsored by live score your guests today were jack joyce from sports interactive and elias burke from the athletic your producer was steve hankey and i won't stop being here macintosh regardless of how nicely you ask me 
The Athletic.